0: I'm Connor Reed with Words to That Effect. In 1881, an American neurologist named George Miller Beard published a hugely influential book, American Nervousness. In it, he laid out the symptoms, cures and implications of what he called neurasthenia. This was essentially what you might call nervous exhaustion, or what was often, and still is called, a a nervous breakdown. Beard didn't coin the term neurasthenia but he popularized it across the world in both medical circles and among the general public. If you read books or newspapers from the 1880s right through to at least the 1930s, you find numerous accounts of neurasthenia. Characters and fiction are constantly suffering from it. Every newspaper ran ads claiming to cure the disease. What all these people had in mind when they described neurasthenia was not necessarily the same thing at all. Defining the illness is not actually very straightforward. Beard's medical treatise on the subject lists a huge number of possible symptoms. Tenderness of the scalp, cramps, sweating hands and feet, excessive yawning, a lack of concentration, feelings of hopelessness, morbid fears, profound exhaustion, numbness, convulsions, insomnia, a sudden giving away of general or special functions, temporary paralysis. Beard's achievement was to gather all these possible symptoms into one understandable and, most importantly, treatable condition. In modern terms, neurasthenia patients may have been suffering from what we might classify today as anything from stress to anxiety, depression or trauma. This is a wide spectrum of terms, but terminology is really important, especially when trying to treat a patient with mental health problems. And many of the terms from this time, especially the idea of a nervous breakdown, are still used today by the general public, if not by doctors.
1: So people use terms like a nervous breakdown or a case of nerves still quite a lot, uh, or a breakdown, whereas we then try and translate that into uh, sort of the approved terminology like uh, depression or mixed anxiety and depression or anxiety disorders.
0: This is Professor Brendan Kelly. I went out to Tala Hospital in Dublin to talk to him about nervousness and mental health. He's a practising psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry in Trinity College Dublin and is particularly interested in the history of mental health. Just as in Beard's time, classifying an illness today is a hugely important part of a psychiatrist's job.
1: You are ill. It's a really, really powerful thing to do, to tell someone they're ill. Um, And the question has to be, does it benefit the person if I do that? Either psychologically, or does it lead us to an understanding, a shared understanding? Does it lead us to a treatment? Does it correctly legitimise symptoms, or legitimise the person being excused from certain obligations like work, or does it incorrectly legitimise them being excused from certain obligations like criminal responsibility?
0: So in the 19th century, declaring someone to be suffering from neurasthenia at a time with a very different understanding of mental health from today could be a huge relief for the patient. It turned what may otherwise have been a poorly understood and socially stigmatising mental illness into something more tangible, something hopefully temporary and curable. What's particularly interesting about neurasthenia is that the more you look at it, the more you realise how cultural it is. And this is one of the reasons Beard's book, American Nervousness, was so influential far beyond the medical world. For Beard, neurasthenia was a modern disease, which was becoming more and more frequent in the contemporary US. It was connected to what he saw as the increased pace of life and to five things in particular. Steam power, the periodical press, the telegraph, the sciences and the mental activity of women. There was, it seemed, more competition in the workplace, more stress, more hurry and worry. But then, of course... It is a constant of the human
1: condition to believe that the current generation is more stressed and more distracted than the last. That the world has become impossibly busy, and there's too much to do, and that no one has any time anymore.
0: And this wasn't just Beard, or only in the US, but in Europe too.
1: Uh, to quote of psychiatrist, James Duncan, who was a leading Irish um, figure, he lived from 1812 until 1895, he became president of the Medical Psychological Association in 1875, and in his presidential address, he said, and is 1875, A striking feature of the present age is that it is one of incessant mental activity. All is hurry, bustle and excitement. Men have become restless and are ever seeking some new stimulus in the way of enjoyment or some new discovery in the path of science. Formerly they were satisfied to jog on quietly in the easy way their fathers did before them. They did not hatch eggs by steam or make calculations by a machine. They had implements but no machines. They disliked newfangled ways. Everyone is now anxious to secure advantage for himself before his neighbour. Is it necessary to prove that the greater the activity of the brain, the greater must be its liability to insanity? So he was worried in 1875, everything was getting quicker, people were too busy, they couldn't cope, and everyone would become mentally ill as a result.
0: Back in the US, newspaper ads from this time sum it all up quite nicely. One runs as follows. Neurasthenia has, during the present generation, come to be known as the national disease of America. In this age of hurry, worry, hustle, and the strenuous life in business, many people overwork their nervous systems and put too much strain upon them, which can lead to partial or total breakdown. Now, the solution in this ad is, wait for it, malt whiskey. The ad recommends it as quote, invaluable to overworked men, delicate women, and sickly children. Now, in most cases, alcohol and caffeine were not advised for neurasthenia. But anyone who could get in on the act was advertising their cure for the illness. Usually they were pills or tonics, which were really just vitamin supplements or something similar. I've put a few of these ads on the website, they're really interesting to look at now. So if stress and strain were causing neurasthenia, then the people most susceptible to it were the professional businessman, the banker or lawyer, the successful entrepreneur. In Beard's opinion, neurasthenia was an affliction of what he called the better classes. That is to say, white, urban, professional men much like himself. So being neurasthenic isn't necessarily that negative at all, especially at a national level. The more people who suffer from neurasthenia in America, the more it's an indicator that the country is modernizing, urbanizing, excelling in business. Beard is outright triumphant a lot of the time. He notes at one point, all this is modern and originally American and no age, no country and no form of civilization in the days of their glory possessed such maladies. So, you know, he's pretty proud of having lots of cases of neurasthenia. So, in the end, it's very much a cultural disease, and pretty soon it was a firm part of the popular imagination, influencing everything from literature to tourism, doctors to presidents. But it's the treatments for neurasthenia that are particularly revealing. Beard saw neurasthenia as a mostly male affair, and a frequently recommended cure was to do vigorous, strenuous, manly activities. Horse riding, fishing, hunting, working on ranches... For American Easterners confined to the stress and strain of the fast-paced city, this meant going out west, and it became known as the West Cure. A whole host of American men went out west for health reasons and ended up being inspired to write about it. The Western genre was born out of this tradition, wrapped up in ideas of the strenuous life, manifest destiny, the frontier, and other aspects of white American identity at this time. Theodore Roosevelt, who would later become U.S. President, was advised to travel West for health reasons, and throughout the late 19th century he wrote about his experiences, helping to shape perceptions of the West. His close friend Owen Wister travelled to Wyoming to cure his neurasthenia, a trip which sparked his interest in the life of the cowboy, the subject of his phenomenally popular Western novel The Virginian, published in 1902. A decade later, Zane Gray, influenced by Wister, published Riders of the Purple Sage, and these two books basically invented the Western genre. The romanticised cowboy life, the black clad gunslinging cowboy, quick in the draw but living by a strict code of honour, the shootout finale. All of these come from Worcester and Grey. And the novels were made into theatre shows, TV series and films for decades to come, continuing to influence how people saw the American West. Ranches were set up across the region, specifically catering to Easterners travelling West to escape the neurasthenic City and recover their shattered nerves. Now, George Miller Beard was not the only person popularising neurasthenia at this time, and for many of these doctors, neurasthenia was just as frequently diagnosed in women. The other most famous name of this time is a physician named Silas Weir-Mitchell. Mitchell Mitchell was the doctor to American High Society, and it was him who diagnosed Owen Wister. But he advocated a very different cure for women suffering from neurasthenia.
2: You're not supposed to write or paint or think in any possible creative way and eat three full meals a day and just lie in bed and do absolutely nothing.
0: This is Dr Dara Downey.
2: My name is Dara Downey. I lecture in English Literature specifically in American Literature um, and I will be lecturing in the School of English in Trinity College Dublin in the coming academic year. Um, I focus mainly in my work on supernatural American fiction and mainly the kind of gothic end of things.
0: So, when it came to treating neurasthenia, there were two very different treatments. For men, a vigorous and stimulating trip out west. For women, a complete removal of stimulus and a period of recuperation in bed. Or, more simply, the west cure and the rest cure. The rest cure is immortalised in one really great short story, the classic of American literature. a writer named charlotte perkins gilman
2: okay well gilman in lots of ways was kind of reasonably typical of female writers at the time she published fairly widely sort of a lot of short things stories um articles kind of polemical works that would have appeared sort of originally in magazines which was how most people made their money in the 1890s there were a lot of women writing at the time who were supporting their no good husbands by writing for magazines um and She was reasonably successful in her day, and one of the things, actually, that Gilman was most famous for um, as a writer was, as I say, her kind of more polemical pieces of work, uh, where she wrote a lot about kind of the status of women in the home. Um, She also had a book called Women in Economics, and kind of a large part of, I think, why she's been picked up now in the 20th century, particularly kind of by... um, feminist starting in the 1970s was because she's one of the few people in the 1890s who try, not always successfully, but she tries to position gender as not kind of essential, not linked to sort of physical traits. So um, she has a great line about kind of how it's really stupid to talk about uh, like the differences between a male and a female brain that you may as well as talk about like a male or a female liver. And so She was someone who kind of tried to put forward this general idea that gender was something that was socially constructed and that therefore women should and could be just as good and just as successful in the public sphere as men and that they shouldn't just be confined to the home.
0: The short story she's most renowned for is The Yellow Wallpaper. It was inspired by her own experience of the rest cure, as prescribed by Silas Weir Mitchell, who's actually mentioned by name in the text. It's a story which takes aim not just at the rescuer, but at the entire patriarchal system which attempted to confine and suppress women.
2: Really, it's a perfect little encapsulation of a lot of the, the kind of things that nowadays feminists are still trying to say about, you know, that it isn't just that sort of domestic life can maybe conceal or hide certain darknesses, but that it can actually create darkness and fear and that it can sort of produce a, a very unpleasant way of life for women who are expected to be delighted with babies and delighted with housework and all of the rest of the thing and when that didn't happen um, that there was an awful lot of pressure on them to conform to a particular kind of kind of normality.
0: The story is very short but it's one that really captures your attention and grips it.
2: I first read it in the library in Trinity um in sort of the first year of my PhD and I just remember looking up when I finished it going uh, uh was everyone else in that with me? That was oh my god, I can't just believe what happened. It's like it packs a real punch and it does it really really quickly.
0: The story is basically about a woman who's suffering from postnatal depression. Her husband, who's a doctor, has diagnosed her with neurasthenia, and he rents an old country house for them to stay in while she recovers.
2: There's a nice little room downstairs with chintz. She likes chintz, chintzy wallpaper. And he says, no, 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 you must go up to this miserable room upstairs that has this disgusting yellow wallpaper that has... She says she keeps looking at the wallpaper and she's trying to work out what the pattern is in it. How does it repeat? What what are the ways that it kind of comes together in a sort of symmetrical way? And she just can't work it out, and it drives her mad literally. Um, She's writing in her diary explaining to us about this yellow wallpaper and she starts to see things in it. Eventually she she starts seeing kind of multiple women and then these kind of shrink down to one single woman who she tries to free from kind of behind the pattern of the wallpaper and at the end, spoiler alert, um, she and the woman behind the wallpaper essentially kind of become one and she's basically turned into... um, a phrase that some people may have heard, the mad woman in the attic uh, from Jane Eyre, she's kind of a version of Bertha Rochester, crawling around on all fours in this room, her hair all over the place, she's thrown the key out the window so that people can't get in, and her husband breaks the door down and sees her crawling around, and he faints, and she just crawls over him.
0: So, in the end, for Gilman, the rest cure, which dictates avoiding all creative pursuits, ends up being the inspiration for a brilliant, enduring work of fiction. It seems that however neurasthenia was cured, rest cure or west cure, creativity and literature were there. Over the decades, things haven't really changed that much. We'll always consider our own age the most stressful, the most susceptible to anxiety and other nervous ailments. Back to Professor Kelly. So now we're seeing
1: people worried that um, young people especially are spending all their time with computer screens and social media and mobile phones and things like this. Um, and that therefore they're more liable to psychological problems, uh, poor concentration and so forth. There's really no evidence at all that this is true, or ever was. It's just a constant that humans think their lives are far more hassled and harried than those who came before them.
0: These worries reflect not just our own anxieties at a personal level, but the cultural anxieties of our time. For Beard, it was transport and communications and women thinking. Today, it's the internet and social media. Neurasthenia may have long disappeared as a medical diagnosis, but its legacy lives on in our attitudes towards mental health, not to mention in some particularly great works of literature. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. If this is the first episode you've heard, there are lots more ready to listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe and you won't miss future episodes. They're out every two weeks on a Monday. The show has really been growing in the last few weeks, which I'm very excited about. It was even in the top 10 arts podcasts in Ireland this week on iTunes. Well, it was number 10, but you know, in the top 10 sounds better. So if you like the show, you want me to make more and reach more listeners, then like the show on Facebook, tell your friends or leave a review on iTunes. Or if you really like the show, you can make a small donation on my Patreon page. Links to this and everything are on the Words That Effect website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. There's a growing collection of articles there, too, about all the topics of the podcast so far, so have a look. Special thanks this week to Professor Brendan Kelly and to Dr. Dara Downey. Professor Kelly's most recent book is Hearing Voices, the History of Psychiatry in Ireland. And if you want to find out more about the literary side of things, about Gilman and lots of other writers, I would highly recommend Dr. Downey's book, American Women's Ghost Stories in the Gilded Age. Links to both these titles and other research is on the website which is where you'll also find more info about the music this week from the jimmy cake their excellent new album top love is out now so go check it out finally if you want to get in touch the show is on facebook and i'm on twitter at ced read c-e-d-r-e-i-d and that's it thanks for listening see you next time